I think uh, it's probably a time to start. I just wanted to uh, say what a great thrill it is for us, uh, the people who are working as researchers on the children born of war in Australia during World War II, to have Professor Sabine Lee visit us and for us to have the opportunity to hear about the great work that they're doing out of uh, Birmingham uh, University in the UK. Um, I won't um, say any more because I think Sabine is going to fill us in on that research project. And um, so I'll hand over to you now. Thank you so much, Sabine. Thank you very much, Vicky. Um, my name is Sabine Lee, and I am a historian at the University of Birmingham. Uh, a few words about my background. I've done some diplomatic history. I've done some history of science. Uh, but in the last few years, I've primarily worked uh, on war-affected children, and in particular, children born of war. And we currently, out of Birmingham, run a project called Children Born of War with this nice little logo that one, one of our researchers has drawn up, uh, Chibov. It's a European Union-funded Union project with 15 PhD students who work on various aspects of children born of war. And I'll say a little bit more about what we mean by children born of war in a minute. What I would like to do is, because we are trying to link this up and make this also relevant to the Australian children born of war project, what I'd like to do is uh, talk a little bit, well, give a bit of a survey really, taking several uh, 20th century conflicts where there have been large numbers of children born of war uh, and talk you through some of the issues that were particularly significant in these particular conflicts to give you an overview of the kinds of themes that I think are of particular significance when studying children born of war. Some of this is history, some of this borders uh, some other disciplines or is interdisciplinary. There'll be a little bit of uh, cultural studies mixed in, a little bit of uh, psychology, some, uh, some psychosocial considerations. Uh, so the historians, well, those of you who would expect a straightforward history talk uh, may be a little bit disappointed. Um, I'll start off with a few um, definitions and then go straight into those conflicts and hopefully um, I will manage to finish within 45 to 50 minutes and then we'll have plenty of time for, for Vicky to say something about the, uh, the Australian Born of War project and also for, for questions and answers afterwards. So children born of war is a global ph phenomenon. It's also a very complex phenomenon, but it's also a phenomenon that is remarkably unknown. Uh, it's not a historical uh, story that has really hit the, the headlines in a big way. And I'll say a little bit more about this as, as we move through uh, the presentation. Uh, what I want to talk about is who are those children born of war? Um, also, why do they matter? Because there are two reasons why topics aren't being studied. Sometimes a small group of people think that something is very, very significant, but the rest of the world doesn't think of it being significant. And sometimes something that the rest of the world doesn't think of being very significant is not being thought of as significant simply because people don't know about it yet. So I want to say a little bit more about why I think children born of war, despite the fact that they are an under-researched topic, uh, are actually significant and are worth studying. 
Uh, so I'll say a little bit about definitions and categories and then say a little bit about why I think it's important to study them. Then I want to specifically look at World War II, but not World War II in its uh, entirety. Uh, massive conflict, very differentiated conflict. Uh, the reason why I want to say something about World War II is because it's a good war uh, to enable us to look at the complexities of the relationship of the parents of children born of war. Uh, and that is interesting and important in order to understand the life course experiences of children born of war. The second uh, conflict I want to briefly look at is the Vietnam War. Uh, and here I want to particularly look at the way in which um, Vietnam and America have tried to find solutions to the problem of children born of war, if, uh, if that's the right way of putting it. Uh, and the big difference between the Vietnam War and World War II is in World War II, large numbers of children born of war could be hidden because we don't have the big racial mix for the majority of children born of war of, of World War II uh, that we have for the Vietnam War where almost all children born of war were mixed race. Not all, but almost all. Then I want to look at Bosnia and Africa, the, the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s and some of the sub-Saharan African conflicts of the 1990s. And the reason why I want to look at those conflicts in particular is because there are two specifics about those conflicts uh, that differentiate them from the other two conflicts I've talked about. Namely, in both conflicts, almost all the children are children born of rape children born of gender-based violence. And that may, again, make the situation of the children born of war different to those of the other conflicts. Also, the 1990s, uh, these two conflicts uh, happened after the Convention on the Rights of the Child were, um, had, had codified children, children's rights for the first time. The Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, was implemented from 1989 onwards. It's the most widely subscribed to piece of international legislation. And if we think about children's rights, this is the yardstick that we have to measure um, both legislation and also implementation of policies against. So uh, these two conflicts, the, the Yugoslav wars and also the sub-Saharan African conflicts of the 1990s and uh, the noughties, are conflicts that happened after the CRC um, was, uh, was signed and ratified, uh, and therefore they are good conflicts to look at uh, from that point of view. And then finally, I want to look at uh, the so-called peace babies, a new, relatively new phenomenon, uh, children fathered by UN peacekeepers and born to local mothers in peace support uh, operations, or in or after peace support operations. And the reason why I want to look at those uh, children in particular is that the United Nations uh, is, of course, tasked with the protection of civilians, in particular the protection of children, but also generally the protection of vulnerable individuals in volatile post-conflict situations. And children being fathered by UN peacekeepers and then possibly abandoned by the soldiers afterwards raise very distinct and very big problems and the United Nations uh, attempt 
to address those problems, not terribly successfully, but they have attempted to, to address these. And I think that is important as part of looking at the way forward in terms of dealing with the challenges that children born of war face. So let's have a look at definitions and categories. So children born of war are children fathered by foreign soldiers and born to local mothers. And this can be, there can be different scenarios. And the definitions and categories are not entirely satisfactory yet. This is a relatively young research field and most of the researchers aren't entirely happy even with our, uh, with our definitions, even with our terminology of children born of war. Because of course, if we're talking about children born of World War II, we're not talking about children, we're talking about people in their 60s and 70s. So the term child in itself is problematic. Uh, in international legislation, children are defined as, uh, as individuals under the age of 18. We're not talking about children in that sense. Uh, we are talking about children merely in a relational context. Children as being um, parented by particular people. So the whole definition and the whole terminology in itself is not entirely satisfactory. But this is what we currently have, so this is what we are working with. And we'll leave the definitions and the definitorial disputes uh, to another time. The vast majority of children born of war are children of enemy soldiers, both in international and in civil wars. Examples, for instance, are children born of German soldiers of the Wehrmacht, for instance, in the Netherlands, in France, in Eastern Europe during the Second World War. If we move on to the Yugoslav Wars, children born of Serb soldiers and Bosnian women. Um, but you can find in any international conflict and also in most civil conflicts, uh, permutations of, of this particular group of children of enemy soldiers. Uh, perhaps an aside, there are very, very few conflicts that we know of where we are not aware of children born of war. One conflict where there seem to be, seems to be very, very little gender-based violence uh, is, uh, is the sort of complexity of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And this is actually a very interesting question to study further, which conflicts are more prone to gender-based violence and to children born of war being born, which conflicts are less prone to this particular occurrence. And there are some interesting theories, and maybe we can discuss some of this in the, um, in, in the final half hour in the discussion. A similar situation um, in, in some sense, but different in other ways, are children uh, of soldiers from occupation forces. Uh, why do I say similar yet different? Occupations can take very different forms. Uh, occupations can be friendly occupations uh, and they can be distinctly unfriendly occupations. If we take the example, for instance, of the Second World War, we have uh, extensive post-war occupation of Soviet, American, French and British troops in Germany and Austria. Um, and some of these occupation experiences would have been seen as very unfriendly. For instance, the initial Soviet liberation, so-called liberation of Germany, uh, would have been a very unpleasant experience for many. Um, parts of the British occupation of West Germany 
were very friendly to the point of, you know, the British still suffering from, from food rationing in order to feed the, the German occupation zone in the early 1950s. So the experience could have been really rather different and generally speaking, occupation experiences can be very varied. Uh, a third group of children born of war um, that are a slightly different category, again, are children of child soldiers. Now, why do we refer to them as children born of war? Child soldiers uh, often are recruited through abduction, through abduction from enemy territory. We have that in particular in Sierra Leone. We also have it in northern Uganda. We find it now in Nigeria and Mali. So, um, and quite often, the, the result is in a civil war situation that uh, female child so soldiers, female abductees, uh, then end up uh, bearing children of rebel soldiers uh, who would be experienced, in, in their experience, would be perceived as enemies. Finally, children of peacekeeping forces, and there's, again, a great variety of those, and peacekeepers sadly have, uh, have left a trail of um, not just children, but also very unhappy uh, women who were victims of gender-based violence uh, throughout peacekeeping and peace support operations in the last few decades. To give you an idea of the, the quantity we are talking about. Now, what you will see is lots of question marks, but just to give you an idea, World War II, uh, just a few areas where we have some figures we can work with, approximately 12,000 children fathered by German soldiers born to Norwegian mothers. That's the one area where we've got relatively clear and concise figures, partly, well, mostly because the Germans um, had a very uh, good bookkeeping system. And uh, these children were mostly born within the Lebensborn organization, an organization specifically uh, catering for children of German soldiers and born in various contexts, often to single mothers. There's an estimated 120 to 200,000 children fathered by German soldiers born to French mothers, a very, very large number. We estimate there are about 400,000 children fathered by Allied soldiers and born to German mothers. And this is just a fraction of the various scenarios. Uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children fathered by German soldiers uh, at the Eastern Front. We have no idea. The figures are really very vague here. Australia, Vicky will hopefully fill us in on figures later. I don't know. Vietnam War in the 1960s, 1970s, and I'm talking about the American War here, between 40 and 200,000 children, I estimated. Um, my guess is that the real number is closer to the 40,000 than to the 200,000, um, but it's a significant number nevertheless. The Bosnian War, one of the many wars within, the, uh, within former Yugoslavia, about 2,000 children. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, 20th century, we have conflicts in most parts of sub-Saharan -Sub Africa, and we are talking about tens of thousands of children in various scenarios, whether it's Rwanda, whether it's Uganda, whether it's Nigeria, whether it's Liberia. So we are not talking about insignificant numbers. Still, the topic is under-researched, and there are various theories why that might have been the case. An interesting theory, which in my view 
is um, relatively persuasive, was put forward by Charlie Carpenter, who's one of the main researchers who, who pushed this subject uh, about 10, 15 years ago. And she has worked, since then, she's worked specifically on former Yugoslavia. And her theory was that um, it didn't pay for anybody, even at a point in time when children's rights were high up on the agenda and women's rights were relatively high up on the agenda. It was trendy to work on these issues. It didn't really pay for anybody to be interested in children born of war because the interests of the children born of war and their mothers are sufficiently different for research on children born of war to get in the way of pushing for some of the issues that were really important for women at the time, in particular when it came to, inter uh, when it came to international legislation and the, um, the dealings of the international, um, well, the international human rights uh, legislators, but in particular also the criminal tribunals, both in, uh, for Rwanda and for former Yugoslavia. Um, I think it's an interesting thought, and perhaps we can also discuss uh, later on why is it that the children born of war haven't had the recognition that I think most of us here in this room would agree they, they deserve, because it is a very important uh, group, to be, group to be studied. Now, let's mo move on to World War II. Um, I've called the presentation Schattenkinder in the Shadowlands, and there was a reason for that. Um, what you see here on the left is a drawing uh, entitled Schattenkinder, Children in the Shadows, roughly translated. It doesn't translate very well. It was, it was drawn by somebody called Knut Weiser, uh, a Dutch painter and, and artist, who is the half-brother of a child born of rape in the Second World War. Uh, this so-called Russenkind, Russian, Russian child, uh, Knut Weiser's sister, uh, was fathered by a Soviet soldier uh, in the early uh, post-war period um, through rape. And the group of Soviet-fathered um, occupation children only very recently started talking about their experiences. Uh, and they have now formed a self-help group called Rottenkinder, Russian children, uh, and they've used this um, painting really to, to explain what they, how, how they feel about themselves. Now, the drawing is, you, you'll see the similarities between uh, the photo on the right. The photo on, on the right is a memorial uh, in an East Berlin park uh, it's called the Treptower Ehrendenkmal. It's a memorial uh, depicting a Soviet soldier who holds a sword and he's standing, and that's not very obvious on, uh, on the photo, he's standing on the broken swastika and he's holding a child on his, uh, on his arm. And this very much is the image of you know, the Soviet protector who's looking after the child, who's destroying the Nazis, um, so this was something that uh, the East Germans were quite familiar with because this was a bit of an iconic image. Now, Knut Weiser took this, um, this image and from underneath this, um, this pile of rubbles uh, emerged three children. 
and they are the occupation children. And what he wanted to express with this is that they were actually in the shadow. They weren't talk about, talked about. They were invisible, uh, even though they were, you know, under the protection, supposedly, of the Soviet soldier. Uh, they were the invisible ones. They were the ones uh, who had to endure silence. And this question of silence was really, really important for many children born of World War II who we spoke to in various research projects, whether they were um, children of the occupation, whether they were children of the Wehrmacht, whether they were children of French soldiers, so Soviet soldiers, Dutch, uh, Dutch women and German soldiers, American women, uh, British women and American soldiers, Dutch women and Canadian soldiers. Their main issue growing up were, well, there were two or three issues that came up again and again. One was the not knowing about the father, but the other one was uh, what one occupation child called the wall of silence. Nobody talked about the father. Nobody was allowed to talk about the father. And whenever I, as a, an occupation child or as a war child, as a child born of war, started talking about the silence or started uh, scratching at this wall of silence, uh, there was a sense I couldn't talk about it. And this was something that we came across in many quantitative and qualitative studies we've done universally across, um, across many theatres of war. It's this living in the shadow of not being recognised, of uh, not being seen for what they really are and not being open about who they are. Um, partly because they weren't allowed to or they felt they couldn't, partly also because they didn't know about their background. So this question of who am I is really, really important for many children born of occupation or war. So Schattenkinder, children living in the shadows. Now, let's move on to World War II specifically. Uh, and what I've uh, put up here are two, two photos. Um, one is a photo taken from an exhibition in 2006 in the Allied Museum in Berlin. And the, the exhibition was called It Started With a Kiss. Uh, and this exhibition uh, was talking about a rather little-known uh, phenomenon, part of the occupation, part of the post-war occupation, namely uh, friendly liaisons between soldiers, occupation soldiers, and German women, in particular Berlin women, but more generally German women. Uh, it was a trilingual exhibition, German, English, and French. You'll notice the absence of the Soviets. Uh, it wasn't deliberate, but the Soviets simply didn't want to be involved in that exhibition at that particular point in time. Uh, and this exhibition really showed the friendly face of uh, relationships between foreign soldiers and local women. And it was good that it was told because there was a large degree of ignorance about this among the German population. Now, the next image is one that you may have um, seen on billboards because it's an image taken from uh, a film. Uh, in English, it was uh, called Downfall. The, the English film was called Downfall. Uh, the German film was called Anonyma, eine Frau in Berlin. Anonyma, a woman in Berlin. And this this is an interesting film, but uh, based on an even more interesting book. In the last few weeks of the war, a German, a Berlin woman, um, and she remained anonymous uh, initially, 
wrote a diary about her experiences of essentially uh, daily gang rapes of Soviet soldiers in the process of Berlin being liberated. And what happened to this woman was that after a few days, she and many of her friends and acquaintances, um, instead of being victimized indiscriminately, many of them chose individual officers, Soviet officers, um, and made themselves available to this particular individual officer in return for food and protection. This woman wrote a diary about this, and a few weeks later in, in June 45, all this happened in April, May 45, in June 45, her husband comes back from the war. At this stage, Germany had, uh, had surrendered unconditionally. The woman confesses, confesses to her husband uh, and gives him the diary to read, and the husband's reaction was that he just left. He left the woman because he couldn't live with what he um, saw as treason. What he saw as treason was the fact that the woman actually decided uh, to, to use her agency in negotiating survival. And this was a typical reaction from what we, what we understand from, from other sources, that the women really who, who suffered greatly um, in, in this initial post-war period, uh, they were left alone by their husbands. The husbands simply couldn't relate to this. Now, the, the diary in the 1950s, late 1950s, was published anonymously, and in the, in the um, words of one commentator, it sank without a trace. Nobody was interested. The only eyebrows that were raised were not eyebrows um, raised because of the treatment of the women, but because of the fact that the, children, uh, that the women decided to negotiate their survival. Um, interestingly enough, about 40 years later, the book was republished, and it made the bestseller list uh, in Germany for, I think, four to five months. And it was later, just a few years later, uh, turned into a film. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this is it tells us a lot about um, the fact that it's not just important what happens uh, to a particular woman in a particular historical context. It also depends, how this is perceived also depends on how people want to perceive things. So in the 1950s, Germany was not ready to discuss these things. Uh, the rape of women was a taboo, uh, and certainly the fact that women were trying to deal with situations and saw their situations in a differentiated way uh, was just not acceptable. In 2005, when the book was republished, and then in 2008, when the film came out, these issues could be talked about. And this is, this is important. Now, I wanted to illustrate uh, this point, but also illustrate the, the point that both these friendly relations and these rather unfriendly relations would have resulted in children born of war. And there was a great variety of parental relationships that children born of war had to deal with. Uh, in our analysis, what we tend to do is we, we sort of differentiate by varying degree of, of coercion, as it, as it were. So there were very clearly love relationships, love relationships between American and Canadian soldiers in Britain, in Australia probably, uh, or in the Netherlands during World War II, 
there were also, let's be very clear about this, there were also love relationships between Soviet soldiers and women in Germany. There were also love relationships, as we know, between German soldiers and Russian women on the Eastern Front. But more often than not, in less inimical geopolitical situations, the relationships between the soldiers and the, uh, the women tended to be more friendly as well. So there is a correlation between the nature of the conflict and the nature of the relationship between soldiers and, and women. Then we have friendly business arrangements, as, uh, as Barbara Stelzenmark calls them, uh, and they are often relationships that are not forced, but are also not entirely voluntary. So, for instance, if we have a relationship between an Allied soldier, in, an American soldier in West Germany, for instance, after the Second World War, uh, and a German woman, then more often than not, the soldier would not force the woman to have a relationship, but circumstances might force her to have that relationship because that might offer her not just protection, but food or, you know, the chocolate for the child or the chewing gum or whatever it might be. So, um, these relationships, these business arrangements had various degrees of, of exploitation um, that, that were inherent in them. Then, of course, in all, in all conflicts, almost all conflicts, we have um, prostitution with varying degrees of coercion. We have military brothels. We have prostitution on an ad hoc basis. Uh, and again, children are the result or in, in those, certainly in, in the Second World War, but also in, in many other conflicts, uh, were the outcome of, uh, of those relations. Then, much more severe still, sexual slavery, uh, which we've come across in, in various contexts. Uh, for instance, uh, probably the most, most notorious example, but by no means the only one, uh, the so-called comfort women in, uh, in the Pacific War. And then there's, of course, uh, rape and outright systematic, systematic sexual violence. Uh, sometimes with genocidal uh, intent, sometimes aimed at forced impregnation, sometimes aimed at forced maternity. And again, uh, all of these lead to children born of war. Now, what does that actually mean for the children? Uh, we've had a brief conversation, Vicky and I, before, uh, before this talk. Um, and it's very difficult to say what it means for, for the children born of war. There are some, um, some researchers who say it's really important to study children born of war and their life courses uh, by specifically differentiating, uh, by, uh, by looking at the nature of the relationship between the parents. This proves extremely problematic, primarily because what children think about the relationship of their parents isn't necessarily what the reality of that relationship might have been like. To give you an example, we've done a study of, um, well, a colleague of mine in, uh, in Leipzig has done a very detailed study of children born of uh, the Soviet occupation, and of the several hundred interviewees, uh, less than 10% uh, stated that they had been um, the outcome of a violent relationship or, or a rape. Now we know from very detailed um, data, archival data, but also other 
circumstantial evidence that the pro proportion of um, rape among Soviet soldiers and among children of, of the Soviet occupation is much, much, much higher. Now, what does that tell us about um, the reliability of this particular aspect of the stories that the children born of war tell us uh, about their parents? We can draw all sorts of conclusions, but to me, as a researcher, uh, what is important about this is that we have to treat the self-assessment of the children relating to the, the nature of the relationship of the parents uh, with a degree of caution because there may be all sorts of reasons why they either perceive their relationship uh, in a particular way or want to believe it to be in a particular, uh, of a particular kind. So I would regard that particular approach um, as very problematic because I don't think we will be able to get very reliable information about the relationship of the parents in most cases. Let's move on to a different conflict. Let's move on to the Vietnam War. Now, many of you, I assume, are familiar with Miss Saigon, a sort of Vietnam War adaptation of Madame Butterfly. Um, it's a story of, well, it's a love story, love triangle, love story, uh, American soldier, Vietnamese uh, woman, and their relationship results in a son. And part of it, as part of the musical uh, that was spun around this love story, uh, one, well, the, the, one of the soldiers uh, sings this song about the Buidoi. Uh, Buidoi means dust of life and is the term that was used quite commonly for children of American soldiers born to Vietnamese mothers in the, uh, in the Vietnam War. And the text is actually really quite, quite telling. And uh, if we just look through it, they're called Buidoi, the dust of life, conceived in hell and born in strife. They are the living reminders of all the good we failed to do. We can't for forget, we must not forget that they are all our children too. I mean, this is, of course, you know, uh, Broadway sh schmaltz in a, in a way, but it is actually uh, something that's not insignificant in terms of... Uh, the situation that many of the children born of war found themselves in. War really, for them, wasn't over when it ended. Uh, for them, the struggles really only began. Uh, and the Vietnam War was, in many ways, an interesting example of children born of war with very specific life courses affected by the fact that they had been fathered by an American soldier. Uh, you see a photo here of Amerasians, um, and what is quite clear is that these Amerasians are visibly different from Vietnamese. They would have stood out. Uh, they would have stood out within a white American community. They certainly would have stood out uh, in a Vietnamese reasonably homogeneous uh, community in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Now, in, I'll, I'll say just a few words about um, the reason why there, A, the reason why there were so many children born of war in Vietnam, but also a little bit about the background of um, how the Americans interacted with the Vietnamese. I don't want to say too much about this because uh, it's 
just a little bit of background, but basically, as in, in many wars, the military, the American military accepted that entertainment, as it was called, uh, was part of a package of providing support to, not, well, to the Vietnamese partners uh, and to the soldiers supporting the Vietnamese partners. So that entertainment also meant um, intimate relations with Vietnamese women. Uh, but as far as the military concerned, was concerned, always in a no-strings-attached way. As far as the military were concerned, and that was the message that the soldiers also got, was uh, women and children are not the responsibility of either the, the soldier or the U.S. military. So if they were prepared to entertain the soldiers, it was on them rather than on, on, the, um, on the military. Most of the liaisons in the Vietnam War were um, unequal. They were not one-sided, but they were unequal. Uh, quite often, the women voluntarily, more or less voluntarily, uh, ag agreed to relations. Uh, but for the women, those relationships were... Uh, for the men, those relationships, by and large, were inconsequential. For the women, they were not. Uh, and this is this peculiar double standard that I think most of you are, are very well aware of, whereas families of Vietnamese bar girls, for instance, would have been quite happy to benefit from the additional food rations and the money and the protection and whatever else came with the activities of the girl. They certainly weren't happy with the other consequences that came with selling the girl's body, uh, and in particular not with the children that um, were the result of those liaisons. Um, most relations remained casual. That was what the soldiers wanted. It was certainly what the military wanted. It wasn't necessarily what the, the women wanted, but um, still, almost 8,000 marriages um, arose out of the Vietnam War, which is quite a significant number, especially given that the military did all it could to prevent that from happening. Uh, and you know, I can say more about this um, later, but we'll, we'll just leave it at that for now. Now, when the war came to an end in the mid-1970s, the Americans um, realized that their soldiers had left behind a large number of children, and they also realized that those children would be in a particularly difficult predicament. Um, they were clearly visible, and the big difference between the Vietnam War and many other conflicts was that uh, when the war ended, the children who were left behind were not children of the former enemy. The children were children of the still enemy. The Americans remained the enemies of the Vietnamese. Uh, it was an ideological war. It was a military conflict. It was a very bloody conflict. Um, so the net result was that in 1975, uh, the, the Americans didn't stop being the enemy. And therefore, the children remained the target of the hatred of of many of the Vietnamese who had suffered greatly during the Vietnam War. So the, the outcome of this um, realization were, were two things, really. Initially, in 1975, the Americans decided to um, enact the so-called baby lift. About between two and 3,000 babies were evacuated, babies and toddlers were evacuated in, um, in an attempt, and many of them, uh, were children of, of American soldiers uh, and in an attempt to rescue them 
from what was perceived to be, or what was thought to be likely a very difficult life in Vietnam. Um, and they, those children were largely adopted into white families in America and Canada, some in, in Australia, and also some in, in Europe. And uh, by and large, from what we know, those children um, settled well and grew up as, as very well assimilated um, uh, Americans. They were clearly Americanized. By and large, that process was deemed a success, uh, and many of the children of the baby lived are actually very grateful for that experience uh, because they basically measure it by comparing themselves and their educational, etc., etc., outcomes uh, with that of the Vietnam Americans who stayed behind. And clearly, in terms of you know, education, in terms of economic well-being, uh, and all those, in terms of health outcomes, they would have been much better off. However, they were cut off almost exclusively, were cut off completely from their cultural um, background, from their parentage, and they weren't really allowed to ask questions about this. And this, in their teens and twen uh, 20s, some of the baby lift children have queried, and many of them have now gone back to Vietnam to rediscover their roots. The second um, rescue operation, as it were, uh, came about a decade and a half later when the Americans decided uh, to allow Vietnam Americans to emigrate to the United States and not just, emigrate, uh, not just the, uh, the children of the, the soldiers but also their mothers and some very close family. And this was the outcome of, well, in 1975 when the baby lift uh, was enacted, it was very much a question of this is what we believe is going to be the um, outcome of Vietnam Americans in Vietnam. By the mid-1980s, the Americans could see what the life of Vietnam Americans in Vietnam was like. And at that point, the Americans decided for a number of complex reasons to engage what many have afterwards called uh, an act of calculated kindness, namely to allow those Vietnam Americans to emigrate. Uh, because they had been discriminated against, they had suffered economic hardship, they had certainly uh, been economically disadvantaged, they'd been stigmatized, ostracized, both in the family and in the local community. Many of them ended up as street children, and many of them suffered through, and again, this is something we'll probably also uh, find in the Australian case, uh, they suffered as a result of the stereotyping of their mothers. Uh, stereotyping as prostitutes, as traitors, as women of loose morals, of questionable political affiliations, etc., etc. And all that was transferred onto the children, and they suffered greatly. Uh, I've just come back from Vietnam where I've, I've interviewed some Vietnam Americans who are still in Vietnam and still trying to come, get out of Vietnam, and the situation is pretty dire for them. And again, these are some Vietnam Americans in Ho Chi Minh City uh, just before they were allowed to emigrate, they're visible. They're visibly different from the Vietnamese, and therefore they were singled out. Now let's briefly talk about Bosnia and Africa uh, before I come to an end. 
And I really only want to talk about Bosnia and Africa, um, A, to talk about the question of what does it mean to be a child born of rape, and also what does that have, what kind of bearings does that have on my human right as a child. Uh, and the reason I want to talk about this is because I want to draw the attention to the fact that although we often look at children born of war as an addendum to the fate of the mothers, uh, because we think of the fate of the mothers because they tend to be, well, quite often they are victims of some kind of either uh, exploitative relationship or unequal relationship. We think of their fate as very closely related to the, the, the fate of the children. And there are actually very important differences in terms of the, the human rights situation of, of both the mothers and the children. I just briefly want to talk about this. Now, Bosnia and Africa, the African context, in particular Rwanda, but also Uganda and, and Sierra Leone, um, these, were, these were important uh, from the point of view of legislation as well as from the point of view of, of making visible uh, sexualized violence in war uh, because these were conflicts where there was a degree of openness about what happened to women. Journalists and by implication uh, then the public knew about Serb rape camps in Bosnia. They knew about the violence in the Rwandan genocide. It was no longer a secret. So the public was aware and this started a process that really ended up in a completely different body of uh, human rights legislation that in the end recognized um, genocidal rape. It recognized, well it didn't recognize everything. For instance, we still don't have uh, a crime of forced impregnation and forced maternity in international law, but that's another, that's another story. But the point was, from the 1990s onwards, this topic was no longer a taboo. Um, but despite the fact that there was a lot of talk and there was a lot of action and there was a, there's a whole body of uh, human rights legislation and also uh, international prosecution, uh, relating to gender-based violence, we still don't talk about the children. They still don't exist as a, a theme and a topic that needs closer attention. Uh, let's briefly think about the human rights and the child rights situation because I think it, it is quite important. Now, the um, CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, single, well, it, it, has, it has a number of core concerns. The, the number one concern of all child, right, child rights legislation is what we call the best interest of the child. Uh, even though this is the core, nobody really knows what it is, but the best interest of the child is the overarching um, concern of all child, child rights le legislation. But then there are a a few other issues that are really important in the CRC. The right to life, the right to non-discrimination, the right to nationality and birth registration, the right to know one's origin and to be with one's parent, and then of course the best interest of the child. Now, looking at those four issues, uh, it's probably already clear 
that those issues, well, those rights, in the case of children born of war, quite frequently are compromised. And I'll just give some examples. And uh, I will then come to an end, and I think we'll leave the, the question of peacekeeping forces uh, to, to the discussion afterwards. Now, the right to life is probably what we would all agree is a, the, fun, the fundamental right. Uh, and some of us might question why children born of war, uh, why that right might actually be compromised with ch uh, for children born of war. The reason why it's compromised is, well, on, on two grounds. And where one stands um, on the first point is, uh, is, is of course, a, a complex issue, but among children, well, children born of war are children born of war, but not every child conceived in this context is, of course, born, and there is the big issue of abortion. And there are people who would argue that uh, the very free availability of abortion to, to uh, victims of gender-based violence has an impact on the right to life of the aborted child. Uh, that discussion is there, and I don't want to engage in it, but I just want to mention it. But also, very important, the rate of infanticide among children born of war is significantly higher than rate of infanticide uh, in the um, control group uh, of non-children born of war. Uh, and again, it's the, the reasons are complex but are probably largely found in the traumatic experience of the mother. So that's certainly what we found in, in Bosnia uh, and also in some of the African conflicts. So the right to life of a child born of war may be compromised simply because that child may simply be killed because it is fathered in the circumstances by the person who fathered it and in the circumstances in which it was conceived. Right to non-discrimination, we don't even need to start the conversation because it's probably fairly obvious from what we've said already and uh, from some of the things that, uh, that Vicky uh, may want to contribute for the Australian case, uh, but there's a vast array of, uh, of circumstances in which uh, children born of war are discriminated against. Uh, Vietnam was, was one example, that's probably the most obvious one of the ones I've, uh, I've talked about. Right to nationality and birth registration, a very complicated issue, just to give you an example from Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, in some, the, the issue in, in most cases is that in some countries, your nationality is passed down the paternal line in, or the bloodline. In some countries, your nationality is passed down by, uh, by, where, by virtue of where you're born. If the two conflict, and you're not born in a country where it's, uh, your nationality is determined by where you're born, and you are not fathered by a person who is either acknowledged or evident, then you may, may end up without nationality, which was the case in, in Bosnia for a lot of children born as war. Um, in post-conflict situations, quite often children born of war are not registered, so their right of birth registration is complicated the right to know one's origin and to be with one's parents. Now, this is probably the crucial one where, that can illustrate where this right of a child born of war might actually be uh, at odds with the right of the mother to privacy and 
to being protected herself because quite often with children born of rape, mothers have no interest in telling the child who the father is. But the child might have a right to know. The two rights are at odds. Or a third person might have a right that is at odds with it. For instance, if there is an adoptive father in play, it might actually work against the best interest of the child to know his or her origin. So while something that makes perfect sense at first sight, yes, of course you have a right to know who you are, gets a lot more complicated when we're talking about children born of war. So what I try to do with my presentation here is really just touch on some of the myriads of issues that are really very important issues that we aren't even close to understanding yet. And this is one of the reasons why the uh, project that Vicky and, and Jennifer are doing here in, in Sydney is so exciting and so important because they are working with real people who are real children born of war who want to and need to understand some of these issues. And I think Vicky is going to tell us a little bit about the Australian project to you know, provide us with a bit of flesh uh, to these more theoretical bones here. Thank you very much. I'm not actually going to talk for very long because I don't want to detract from Sabine's visit here too much and I think you probably have quite a number of questions for her. So I just want to make a couple of um, points about the Australian situation. Uh, uh, one thing I want to do as an Aboriginal person here, I want to acknowledge the children born of war within my own community, within the undeclared frontier wars that my people have suffered. And just in relation to that, with the idea of infanticide, I was reminded of the story of Bangyari Jack Sullivan from the Kimberley, who was actually born around about World War II. I've been trying to think of a date. But he, in his uh, autobiography, he says that as a young man, his mother said to, me, said to him, you're actually lucky to be alive. I was going to hit you on the head with an axe when you were born. She said, it's only old Dinah that saved you. And Dinah was the midwife that delivered him in the women's birthing camp on the station, Argyle Station in the Kimberley. And apparently old Dinah said to the mother, don't kill that boy. He's half-caste, but he's a pretty boy. I had one of those half-caste children. They're fine. They're good. They're our children. And she convinced the mother. Very interesting story. So I've actually had the opportunity to collect some of those stories from Aboriginal people for the work that I've done on the history of the Aboriginal family in Australia. And it's really the history of the Aboriginal family that brought me to the idea of doing the work on children born of war. And I say that because... Um, uh, the story of children born of war in Australia is um, overwhelmingly a story that belongs to Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and South Sea Islander women, the mothers uh, and their families, because while there were non-Indigenous women who were mothers of children in that time, there was actually a, a scheme whereby uh, white women could return with their husbands, their American husbands, to America and form families for the children there. 
Not to say that there weren't children left here. The non-Indigenous children uh, tended to be, uh, if they had single mothers, they tended to be institutionalised, fostered and adopted uh, within Australia. Um, and um, we, in our project, we're not exclusive. We're not going to be racially exclusive or racially segregating in the way that the United States military and the Australian government were at the time of World War II. An interesting fact about um, our project is that we're looking at the children born of allies. But it's a very interesting thing, the relationship between the United States military and the Australian government and the Australian people at that time. In fact, one of the prominent feminists from the uh, United uh, uh, Australian Women, UAW, yes, Jennifer knows all about this, um, Jessie Street, who some of you may have heard of if you know about Australian history, she actually called it Occupied Australia. So while the Americans were allies, there were, very, there were fault lines, if you like, in the relationship between Americans and Australians. And a, a, a very important part of that was to do with race. The American and the Australian uh, 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 nations had racially segregating regimes, uh, uh, socially and militarily, and they rubbed up against each other within Australia. Um, just, I want to mention the children born of war in the region. There are children born of war in Papua New Guinea as a result of the Indonesian occupation of West Papua. There are children born of war in, Ta in Timor as a result of the occupation of Indonesian uh, uh, troops uh, of Timor. I understand that in Timor there's a huge problem the fact that the departing Indonesian military took the children, often at gunpoint from their mothers, back to Indonesia uh, to be raised as Muslim. Uh, the Timorese people themselves have reported on that, um, particularly in a very passionate film that they made about the, um, this phenomenon. Uh, the children born of World War II in the Pacific uh, right across the islands of the Pacific where the Americans were stationed and were fighting. I mean, it's amazing to think of the huge disruption to lives in the Pacific with war being waged all around them. But there were still babies born and there were heaps. In fact, there were so many babies born in the Pacific that the Queen of Tonga famously said, all of the children born as a result of the war are Tongan. And she did that because she didn't want them to carry the stigma of having had uh, American fathers. I referenced the work of Judy Bennett, Angela Wanhalla at the University of Otago, who've just published a really fantastic book on the children born of war in the Pacific this year. Another point that I wanted to make is that um, not only uh, were there uh, something like uh, 800,000 allied US <coughs> troops in Australia uh, stationed here over the course of the Pacific War from 1941 to 45, uh, but there were also uh, troops from the Netherlands. So as the Dutch East Indies was overrun by the Japanese, the uh, 
Dutch forces retreated to Australia. There are at least 80,000 Dutch troops here, including what we know of so far, one battalion of African uh, men who they recruited in the Dutch East Indies. These men came from Suriname. They were, in a, uh, they were housed in a camp outside of a... And just let me put that map up very quickly. This is a map showing the US military bases in Australia and the children born of war are clustered uh, often around these. But just up in the north of New South Wales, on the coast here... Ah, that's what I could use. Thank you. Thanks. Just up here, outside of Casino, was the Victory Camp, where not only the men from Suriname, but uh, Indonesian men who'd fought with the Dutch uh, and also Eurasian were housed. Out of that camp came a lot of the um, independence movement, in fact, in Indonesia after the war. The Dutch actually shot men in that camp, and that some of them were moved to Kaura to be housed with the Japanese who had actually been their enemy. Curious story. A lot of that documented, but what's been written about victory camps so far, you would never have known there were African men there. What I know from talking to local Aboriginal people is those men went out to find Aboriginal people, they befriended them, they brought them food, they actually found Aboriginal people very hungry. And at least one child was born as a result of that uh, connection. Um, finally, just talking about the, um, the problems for children born of war in Australia. Um, the stigma. Uh, uh, just as you were saying, there's a lot of silence from the mothers. The mothers don't talk about this un to the extent where even one mother who was married, uh, her child did not know that until he did the research after she died. Um, it was uh, like getting blood out of a stone, uh, but she, her circumstances were particularly heartbreaking. The only reason the Americans, who the commanding officers approved of marriages, the only reason why they approved of the marriage of this couple, because he was African-American and she was said to be Aboriginal, uh, was uh, because he held out, and I think he had some sway because he'd actually been targeted to develop a new black military police in Australia. So he was quite a senior man amongst African Americans and he insisted that he marry and uh, because she was very upset at the prospect of having had a child outside of marriage. This stigma of illegitimacy and they actually married 12 months after the boy was born and um, only on the condition that she be counselled that she could never travel to the US and neither could their child. So it was US immigration law that um, kept them uh, out, uh, away from the opportunity to form a family with the husband and father. So um, while uh, I guess in, in, in summation, uh, we actually don't have a good idea of the number here in Australia. Uh, we have um, almost 30 on our books, people who've agreed to be a part of our project. Our project is almost 12 months uh, 
uh, into a three-year uh, project, so maybe there'll be more. But what we're finding is that um, if you see, uh, actually Melbourne is supposed to be a hollow circle, US Army representative. Um, the headquarters were, um, the headquarters is the filled circle. So the headquarters, you're going to have a lot more uh, men stationed there. And the headquarters of the um, Southwest Area Command was in Brisbane. So Brisbane, there are a lot of children born of war around Brisbane. There are a lot around Townsville and Cairns because the African-American men tended to be stationed in the, in the north of Australia and they were building infrastructure up there like... because um, they were all engineers, there were no active military, they were stationed in Australia for the duration of the war. They were building roads, airstrips, gardens, um, all the infrastructure to deal with the expected Japanese invasion. After all, Townsville was bombed, Darwin was bombed. Um, so here, the filled circles, Darwin, Cairns and Townsville are the only three. Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth and Sydney are only US representatives. We have less of the phenomena in those areas. But don't forget, the US Navy was coming into all of these ports. There's quite a movement of people, quite a movement of military personnel. Now look at the number in Papua New Guinea. This is where all the action was. Uh, we don't know, well, actually more than one way perhaps, we don't know the extent of the children born of war in Papua New Guinea, but we have heard of them. We have heard of them. And I doubt that anyone is doing any work with those yet. Uh, so this is the way Australia was divided up by the Americans. They came here, they were based here to fight the war in the Pacific. Australians ended up being enormously grateful that the Americans came because really we did not have the wherewithal to uh, repel the Japanese and it was really the American aeroplanes uh, in the Pacific that could island hop and get people into strategic positions that helped to win the war. So overall, Australian uh, military personnel were off fighting elsewhere. Uh, there were a lot of single women in Australia. The Americans came here. They were very resented by the Australian military. Um, it was a very topsy-turvy situation. It was wartime. And what did Ernest Hemingway say? Uh, when he went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. And if any of you know of Ernest Hemingway, he was a man who knew what it meant to party. And he said, the only place to live is in a war zone. I'll finish there. Thank you very much. So can I ask for questions for Sabine? Yes. Yes, I, I have a World War II question. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been doing some work on, on the uh, repatriation, Soviet repatriation of 1917 mm -hmm. after the war. And there, the, uh, there are issues about children. But the big issues about children concern, the biggest of all, concerns a group who doesn't come into your country. And I want to ask about that group. Uh, these are the children born to women who 
forced labour. Yeah. Now that we can yeah. very clearly show what they, they fought as a result of yeah. war. Yeah. Uh, their children Yes, um, they aren't, well, there are some, some academics who say we should really look at, at them also under this umbrella of children born of war, and there are good, good reasons for, for saying, saying that. There's some very good work on, um, on especially the Soviet side coming out of the um, Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for research into the consequences of war in Graz, uh, where Stefan Karner and Barbara Stelzel-Marx are, they've, they've looked at forced laborers in particular, uh, and they, they know an awful lot about that. The, the legislation in, in terms of how to deal with them is slightly different to the legislation in terms of repatriation in particular, um, compared with, with children born of war under our, um, under our um, definition. I mean, with the Soviet Union, the main problem is, of course, as far as they're concerned, children born of war don't exist. Children born of the occupation don't exist because those relationships didn't exist, because fraternization didn't exist, because the soldiers did not have relationships with the local populations because they were forbidden to have those reg uh, relationships, and therefore, of course, these relationships didn't happen as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Um, and therefore... Uh, it's, it's a really interesting, but it's also, I mean, as you probably know a little bit better than I do, it's a very difficult research topic, even to this day and age, uh, because most of the sources that would throw light on this, uh, for the children born of the occupation in particular, uh, are currently not open to us. Uh, so I... Well, yes, yes, yeah, but they, those children wouldn't feature in them. Yes, forced laborers, that's a completely different story because they existed and they also officially exist, yes. But it is a, I mean, in, there are similarities in, in, uh, in the experiences of children of forced laborers. I don't know very many. I've, I've uh, been in contact with a handful and it seems to me that their experiences are similar in terms of childhood adversities of, of um, economic hardships in particular, but also, of course, the, the questions of, of identity and root. Where is my root? Who am I? And who actually wants me? I mean, this is, this is another big issue. Um, I'm not wanted in my birth country. I'm not wanted in the country where I might want to be repatriated. We have a very similar um, issue that is currently being researched in the Chinese-Japanese case where there were a lot of children um, of forced laborers um, who, who are in a similar situation of, of repatriation who simply don't know where they belong and they really aren't wanted in either country. So I think in that sense it's a very similar situation of, of the children. But I don't know very much work that has been done about the life courses of those children in particular. I, I don't know whether you, you know of, of any work there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I could imagine that their, their experiences are very similar.
Um, I mean, the, the problem is, of, well, not problem, but the, the interesting aspect about research on children born of war, there are, of course, similarities to other groups uh, in terms of life course experiences uh, it, with other groups that are not children born of war. In terms of the whole question of identity of who's my father and not ever knowing who my father is, um, some of the psychologists have done interesting comparative work with uh, children of, uh, of semen donors who cannot trace their origins uh, or for, for certain groups who could not trace their origins. I know that the law has changed now, but in terms of the psychological impact of never being able to find out who your father is, um, there are some very interesting similarities, even though the, the, other, uh, the, the rest of the, the personal vitae are completely different, or is completely different. Sorry, I didn't hear the first part of the question. Is there a... Yes, I mean, <laughs> well, big question, very big question, um, because with refuge, well, where shall I start, really? <laughs> the short answer is yes. Um, again, with refugees, it depends very much at the age at which you are a refugee, and the whole, it's not just refugees, it's also displaced people. Uh, and there's some, interesting, there's some interesting work being done uh, by people like uh, Tara, uh, Zara Tara on um, using children, displaced children, uh, in terms of um, building discourses on nationality. Because some of the, none of these conversations uh, happen in a vacuum. There are questions of nationality, there are questions of ethnicity, there are questions of, in some cases, questions of religion that play into this, um, and, and the big question of belonging, you know, overarching all of these. So, uh, yes, there are, of course, similarities and links, and, and there are also research links. Uh, research groups working on refugees also uh, talk with us and we talk to them because of these similarities. Um, there are, um, yeah, let's, let's leave it at that because, I mean, I, I could drill deeper into this, but then I'd probably be talking for another 10 or 15 minutes about this. Uh, is there a particular aspect you want me to? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a debate that gets talked about in, in continental Europe at the moment an awful lot, yes, yeah. And, and in some, it's interesting because some of these conversations are actually replaying earlier conversations about uh, nationality and nationhood. And there's, there's one interesting aspect that I've been thinking about um, that is sort of related with this whole nationality issue. Um, and that has to do with when does a military actually claim any sort of responsibility for the children? Because on the whole... Uh, the military has nothing to do with us. You know, it's the individual soldier. And, you know, they can do what they like, and if anything, we make it easy for them to just move them elsewhere. That's, the, that's generally what happens. But there are some interesting exceptions to that uh, case. One interesting exception is the Lebensborn case that I mentioned right at the beginning, where uh, as part of the Nordification of Germany, as part of the... Aryanization and the race ideology of the Nazi German regime, uh, the Germans 
actually encouraged their SS soldiers, or soldiers more generally, to procreate with especially Norwegian women, but also with some of the other Nordic parts of, of Europe uh, which they occupied. And they then claimed those children and were quite keen to, even if they were born in Norway, to bring them back into the Reich. That's one interesting example. Another interesting example is the way France generally dealt with children of uh, its soldiers. Because for France, it, the France were not so much preoccupied with race. They were preoccupied with their grande nation. So whenever a soldier fathered a child, as far as the French were concerned, they could bring that child back into France, and we have thousands of children of the Indo First Indochina War, for instance, who were repatriated into France in order to, you know, boost the French nation. Uh, similarly, the French were quite happy uh, to repatriate children of healthy German women uh, and healthy children of healthy German women uh, into France after the, the Second World War. But we have a few other interesting examples. There is, in the Yugoslav War, there was a distinct um, nationalistic aspect to the race, an ethnic and, and nationalistic aspect to the Serb uh, rape campaign, where there was a deliberate attempt to impregnate Muslim, Bosnian Muslim women with Serb, uh, well, to, to, for them to bear Serb children in order for them not to have Bosnian Muslim children, but instead bear Chechnik uh, children. It's faulty logic, though, isn't it? Well, it's, well I, d I don't think one can apply logic at all <laughs> to anything like that. But we actually find something very, very similar, and it's not just Europe. We find something very similar in Uganda. We have a war between the Lord Resistance Army, which is a, a rebel group in, uh, well, South Sudan, northern Uganda, they want to create a new Acholi country, nation, whatever, and they do this by creating children, by creating new Acholi children. Uh, it's in those situations, the military or the paramilitary claim the children, but it's almost exclusively from what I can see when there's a nationalistic drive towards creating or recreating a nation. We've seen it in Germany, we've seen it in, in, in Serbia, and we, we're seeing it now in Uganda. So, um, but in most other cases, the militaries just say nothing to do with us. So you mean genocide versus forced impregnation or? Well, what I mentioned was that there are instances of forced impregnation, and that's a relatively new phenomenon, actually, forced impregnation, which is genocidal in character. Now, that, seems, that might seem counterintuitive. How can forced impregnation be genocidal? Um, what I'm referring to is, well, the, the Bosnian case, for instance, would, would be one example of that. Now, what happened in the, um, in the rape camps, I'm aware of the fact that we've got younger members in the audience, so I don't want to be too explicit here. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, okay, good. Um, what happened was that, um, that in the Serb rape camps in Bosnia, 
women were gang-raped and kept captive. Well, they were gang-raped until they were impregnated. They were then held captive until it was too late to, um, to have an abortion. And the, the thinking behind that was, they were, these were uh, Serb perpetrators impregnating Bosnian Muslim women. And the idea was, there was definitely forced impregnation, and the idea was genocide in the sense that it was thought that the children uh, that were born out of that, um, that crime uh, would be Serbs, would be uh, part of the Serb nation, Serb race, however defined, but in the vast majority of cases, this would mean those women would never, ever have another child again. And this is how, ironically, you know, you create a life and you destroy a life and you, you try to destroy a whole nation. I mean, the, the, the whole rationale around it with, yeah, is not a rationale, it's not rational, but that was the thinking behind it. And it was driven out of a fear of, um, I mean, there, there was a whole lot of, um, the, the Serbs were really concerned about their birth rates. They were faced with, especially in, in uh, Kosovo, Albania in particular, but also among Bosnian Muslims with very large birth rates. And there was this weird thinking that the Serb nation would be destroyed if they didn't stop those Muslim women from having children and if they didn't make sure that the Serb nation would be reborn through these kinds of means. I mean, it's all absurd and, and yeah, but that was the thinking behind it and actually very explicitly put down in policy documents. You know, you, you would have thought nobody would, be, would, would dare to put something even in writing, but yes, that was the policy behind it. But it's really just a rationale for race. No, no, it's, I don't think it's, it's quite so simple. It's, it's a lot more skewed than that. It is, yeah, but there, there's actually more to that than, than just, just the rape. It's, uh, um, there, is, there, is some, uh, there is some research. Um, it's a much newer phenomenon, obviously, because we haven't had women in the military. Um, most of the research actually focuses on the question of how do women in combat and in combat units affect the dynamics of the fighting and also the, the off-combat activities. Um, and the, the focus of the research really is on how useful is it to have women in those combat units in order to prevent gender-based violence from happening. Um, and the, the broad consensus at the moment is that it, it reduces the occurrence of gender-based violence outside the unit but not inside, obviously. Uh, and there's an awful lot of more of that happening than the militaries are comfortable with, to, to put it uh, euphemistically. Um, there's very little evidence of gender-based violence the other way around. I mean, there is, of course, a whole different issue, and we, I mean, this is outside this, this particular topic, of course, uh, but there's, of course, also gender-based violence directed at men, and much more of it than had been believed possible until quite recently. But that's a whole different topic. In, uh, in the Australian case, there is um, 
the um, American nurses in the military uh, were uh, there were cases of rape of those, and also um, Red Cross workers, women Red Cross workers uh, from the uh, American Red Cross. They were also kind of at risk. There are some uh, things in the files about the um, gender violence against those women. In fact, there's a story of some Americans. Uh, it's reported they were hung on Australian soil for rape. Uh, but I've ho heard a contradictory yeah. story that they actually went back to the US and were released from prison mm. not long after they got back. So, I mean, it's not exactly in our project, so we haven't pursued that as yet, but it is very interesting because there's significant work done on the hypersexuality of men who are in combat. Mm. And there's a very interesting book by Mary Louise Roberts mm. Uh, what soldiers do yeah. uh, about uh, American GIs in France. Three sections to the book, love, uh, prostitution and rape. And there were a huge uh, number of rapes of French women by uh, US GIs. And it, there's a big story there, I won't go into it. Yes. But uh, there is a thing yeah. about the hypersexuality of men who are in combat. Um, I mean, some of this, of course, one also has to think about to what extent is this conflict related or to what extent is this the kind of, let's call it workplace harassment that is probably more common than we would like it to be, even outside conflict. So it's, it's sometimes a bit difficult to, to see where do we draw the line in terms of uh, attributing this to conflict. But of course, the point about conflict is that it tends to amplify many things because it's extreme, an extreme situation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I mean, there, there are two answers to that, I think. Um, one is um, you could look at it simply from a legal point of view. You know, war as a, con a concept in international law. So you declare war, you have war, you end war, and in that sense, war ends. Um, this is what I probably would have said about 20, 30 years ago. Um, I think we're truly um, outside that particular way of thinking because uh, current conflicts, armed conflicts and wars simply aren't like that anymore. Uh, most conflict, armed conflicts um, cu currently have not been declared as war. So from that point of view, the terminology doesn't quite work anymore and there isn't war ends when it ends. But this is exactly, I guess, the point also that the, the um, Bouidoy song from Miss Saigon was alluding to. War isn't over when it ends. Um, yes, from the international legal point of view, it might be over, but of course the consequences of war go on and on and on. And it's not, it, it is certainly for the children born of war, but it's not just for the children born of war. Uh, post-war volatilities, um, post-conflict volatilities affect large groups of populations in most post-conflict situations. And in fact, that's where, when for many people the, the real struggle starts. And if we then, I mean, we, we didn't talk about this now, but I think you're absolutely right. War, war isn't over when, when it ends. In particular, in volatile situations such as the situations where now peacekeepers are active, uh, in peace support uh, operations, it's very clear that you know, the, the conflict doesn't stop 
the problem. And uh, it's very rare that a war-torn country moves seamlessly into a peaceful situation. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think it's absolutely astounding what happened to Europe after the Second World War. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about, I, I come from the UK, and of course there's a lot of talk about, you know, what does the European Union mean? But the, the most significant thing that the European Union has brought and European integration has brought is peace and relatively seamless moving from the most destructive of wars to a situation where countries could live with each other and where people could thrive and prosper. Um, that is what European integration has done and that is something that is very, very special and highly unusual. And you're absolutely right, in most situations it's completely different. If we look at, for instance, to give you the one example that I've referred to quite, quite often today, uh, the, the, Yugoslavian, uh, the Yugoslav court. Yugoslav is still a mess. You can't even talk about children born of war uh, there because there's no recognition at all uh, that that is, a, I mean, the, the children born of war, the, the children fathered by, uh, through rape by Serb, Serb soldiers have it really, really tough because they cannot talk about who they are. The Serbs and the Croats and the Bosniaks still don't talk to each other. Uh, so much so, I mean, we've had a, a child born of war who wrote a a set of, um, well, biographical and autobiographical stories of children born of the occupation in Germany. A really, really good book uh, by somebody who is not a historian, who's somebody who is affected, who is a child born of war. Um, we've taken the rather unusual step, but I think it's really, really effective, of having that book translated into Bosnian to show Bosnian women that it's okay to... Or to to show Bosnian children born of war that it's okay to talk about this issue and that it's actually helpful to address this issue because the issue isn't going to go away. It's going to get worse if it isn't talked about. And uh, so, yes, I entirely agree. It's not over when, when the politicians say it's over. Well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure whether it's necessarily a white issue because, you know, if you go to, I don't know, any part of Africa, there's an awful lot of that kind of thing. Um, well, I guess that's a very long debate, but I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I'm, I'm I mean, it's, uh, if, if you, well, no, I, I don't think it necessarily... I think that would be far too easy to say just because the white were there, uh, the Africans now decide to also fight each other. I don't think that's, that's quite so simple. I mean, I think that the, the underlying motivation of... Sorry? Thank you very much. Thanks. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Oh.